All right. Well, um, tonight might be interesting. Uh, this will be a different topic, but an important one. And uh, my goal tonight is to make this as applicable as possible and not merely academic or theoretical. How's that for a gripping introduction? <laughs> because tonight we're going to ask the question, what does the Bible say about dispensationalism? That is a long word that barely fits on that line, if you can, if you can even read it. Um, this was a question submitted, and, and, and some of the kind of the offshoots of this question were things like this. What are the dispensations? What do they connect with the covenants? What causes one dispensation to end and another to start? Um, you may think, what is a dispensation, <laughs> all right? Um, now, there might be a variety of levels of knowledge about dispensationalism, but it's something really important for us to know and understand as a church. First of all, because our articles of faith state that we hold to dispensationalism. And so you're here as a member of the church, and you're saying, oh, we, uh, we believe in dispensationalism. It'd be good to know what in the world that is, okay? So just, just, for, just to get a sense of where we are, you can be honest, it's okay. Um, how many of you would raise your hand and say, what in the world is a dispensationalism? I, okay, all right. Yeah, now I, I get that. How many of you would say, um, I know what it is. If you were to ask me to explain it, I'd have a really hard time. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, this is the important thing about things like this, is, is not only should we know what we believe as a church, but why? And, uh, and, for, and for me to just kind of state that our church believes it without explaining it, um, I'm, I'm doing you a disservice. And so, and I want you to see tonight why this is an important thing. This isn't some, some theological mumbo-jumbo that only seminarians or professors need to deal with, that this actually has some very significant ramifications for us as believers. So, let's begin with that fundamental question, what in the world is dispensationalism? Now, there may be a variety of thoughts that come to your mind when you hear the word dispensationalism, from, I have no clue what that is, to all I know is has a bunch of charts, and it's really scary, all right? <laughs> now, just to put your mind at ease, I went online and tried to find the most complicated chart I could possibly find. There are far more, and don't try to spend time reading this. I haven't even read this, okay? So I am not, I'm not bringing this to you as a recommendation, all right? But this is often what people think of when they think of dispensationalism. They think, ah, scary charts, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't even know what in the world this means. It doesn't really matter. Uh, in fact, the tendency for us is to look at these theological terms and conclude, okay, this, this really isn't important. How is this going to help me live my life for Jesus tomorrow? Isn't that often our thought with a lot of these theological terms? And sometimes we're, you're often right in that. Now, how is this going to help me love my neighbor, as we saw even this morning? Let's leave all that deep theological stuff to the professors in the seminaries. So I get that. So let me ask another question. Is it important to have a consistent approach to reading the Bible? Okay. Now, there's, we see a direct connection to our Christian life, right? It should be really important to know how to understand and read the Bible, 
Does reading the Bible differently result in different understandings of the whole message and structure of the Bible? If you approach the Bible a certain way, does it impact your understanding of all of Scripture? It does. And at the outset, we'll say this, that dispensationalism, in its essence, is a way to read the Bible. It is a hermeneutical, there's another fancy word, hermeneutical. Hermeneutical means interpretation, how you interpret the Bible. So dispensationalism is a hermeneutical framework for understanding all of Scripture. And so you may think, what's, why is dispensationalism so important? Well, let's step back and ask, is it important to have a consistent approach to reading the Bible? Another question you might ask yourself, is it important to understand and be confident in the promises of God? Is that important? Absolutely, it's important. And it's because of the clear importance of both of those two things that I believe understanding dispensationalism as wonky and long and technical of a word as it is, is really important for us as Christians. Let me give you an example. There's a lot of different frameworks for understanding scripture. Dispensationalism is, dispensationalism, it's even hard to even get out of my mouth, is, is, is not the only one. There are many different frameworks. And uh, let me just give you an example of a different framework that, that many Bible-believing, gospel-believing, Jesus-loving Christians hold to. And it is called covenant theology. How many of you heard of the term covenant theology before? All right. Now, there's, I could go really deep into covenant theology, um, but um, let me just give a basic overview for this. Uh, covenant theology holds to there's three overarching covenants in Scripture. There's the covenant of redemption, and that was made with the members of the Trinity in ages past. Uh, the covenant of works, which was made with Adam, and then the covenant of grace, which is basically everything after that, right? The biblical covenants, so the Noahic, the Davidic, the Mosaic, the new covenant, are all outworkings or developments of the covenant of grace. Now, because it's one covenant of grace, and and God is working out one covenant uh, throughout the ages, Covenant theology holds that there's no distinction between Israel and the church. The church is Israel, and the Israel and Israel is the church. In fact, some covenant theologians will even go back to say that Adam was the first church member. He was the first member of the church. And so, with this framework, many promises made to Old Testament Israel are interpreted metaphorically, typo there, metaphorically to find fulfillment in the church. So, for example, there's land promises made to Israel, that there will be an eternal land given to them. Um, and, and if you take the framework that there's this covenant of grace overarching everything, there's this one people of God, and Israel is the church, and the church is Israel, then you have to take promises made to Israel and apply them to the church. And that prompts you to actually interpret some prophecy metaphorically. I know it says land, I know it talks about boundaries, but that was, that's actually metaphorical. Covenant theologians was also hold to something called New Testament priority. What's New Testament priority? Well, it's the idea that certain Old Testament prophecies should be understood through the lens of the New Testament, that the only way to fully understand some of these prophecies is actually understand the New Testament first and then read that understanding back into Old Testament promises to Israel. Now, What's the problem with that? What's the potential problem with needing the New Testament 
to fully understand the promises of the Old Testament. Anyone want to take a stab at it? What do you think? Yeah, it Rick. assumes that people before Christ would not have been able to truly know God. Sure. And therefore, how could they be believers? Right. So, so Rick makes the point that, that, that uh, if that's the case, then the promises are not understandable to Old Testament saints to which these promises were given. That the promises are made to Israel, they're very specific in their content, but it's, there's, there's kind of a hidden meaning that really won't be understood later. So the problems with this, if, if Old Testament prophecies were to be viewed metaphorically and fulfilled in the church, Old Testament saints would have no way of understanding the promises given to them. And here's another problem that flows out of that. If, if the Old Testament promises were, were fulfilled metaphorically, how do we know that the New Testament promises made to us aren't metaphorical? If we're going to read our New Testament promises straightforwardly, should we not also read the Old Testament promises straightforwardly? Another problem and inconsistency is that all prophecies that we have seen thus far in Old Testament scripture that are actually fulfilled are literal. The prophecies concerning Jesus are literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's a prophecy of 70 years of captivity. Uh, Israel going into captivity for 70 years, that was fulfilled literally, and it was understood literally as well. In fact, if you read in Daniel, he's there in Babylon, and he's looking, and he's looking at the calendar, he's saying, the 70 years is almost up. And I know that since God promised 70 years of captivity, that once 70 years hits, it's going to be over. He didn't look at it and say, okay, 70. Seven, the number of perfection, right? Ten, the Ten Commandments. You know, just pick anything, right? And, and, and so what it's really, I know it says 70 years, but what it's really referring to is this perfect time of completion in which we finally come to obey the Ten Commandments, all right? Now you're like, what in the world? That's, that's kind of wacky. Actually, throughout church history, it was not com- uncommon to interpret Scripture in that way. And we see Old Testament prophecies were interpreted literally. They were fulfilled literally. And so there's some problems here. And so, the importance of dispensationalism all goes back to how do you read the Bible? Forget the system, forget the charts, forget even the dispensations at this point. How do you read the Bible? And one of the key tenets of dispensationalism is simply this. Be consistent in your hermeneutical approach. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. What is dispensationalism? Let's get to a definition here before we continue. A dispensation is just a fancy term for an administration or an economy. It comes from the Greek word oikonomos, economy. You can see the word right in there. It's an interpretive grid that sees distinct administrations of God throughout history. All right? A distinct administrations of God seen throughout history. Now, you may ask, do we see hints of this structure in Scripture? We do see some hints. You can turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3. I'll also have this up on the screen here. I I think I do. Yes, I do. Um, I'll have the passages up here on the screen. Ephesians 3 verse 9 is actually part of our uh, memory verses that we've been going through. I'm going to read this uh, from the Christian Standard Bible because it, 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 I think it renders the Greek word more clearly to understand what we're talking about. 
Ephesians 3.9 says to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. There's the, is the Greek word oikonomos, administration, economy. What it seems to be hinting at here is that the dispensation, and we'll see the whole structure in a minute, but the dispensation of the church was a distinct administration of God in time that was previously a mystery, right? So it was unforeseen, it, was, it, was, it wasn't known, and then when that dispensation arrived, when that economy arrived, it was made known, it was shed light on. We see also in Ephesians chapter 1, Another hint at this structure. He says in Ephesians 1, verse 9 and 10, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to the, and here's that same Greek word, an administration suitable to the fullness of times. So here we point to a future time, the fullness of times, when God is going to be governing in a certain way in the fullness of times. This is a distinct administration. So that's what dispensationalism points to, that as you look throughout Scripture, you see these distinct epochs of time where God is interacting with his people in a certain way. What are some distinctive features of dispensationalism? Number one would be a consistent historical grammatical interpretation, especially with prophecy. Now, again, I, I want to make sure I'm defining things and, and, and so that we are understanding. I know I'm throwing out a lot of crazy terms here, but I hope that we see the importance of this. Historical grammatical interpretation, what does that mean? You might say more simply literal interpretation. Um, I like, to, I like to, and this is probably a little, you know, snide of me, but I like to call it just a normal interpretation. Like, I like to read the Bible normally. Um, in other words, read the Bible at face value. So when it's poetry, read it as, as poetry. When it's narrative, read it as narrative. When it's prophecy, read it as prophecy. You, you're incorporating the historical and the grammatical elements of it, and you're reading it straightforwardly. Now, all professing, all orthodox Christians will hold to a historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. The difference arises in its, consistent, in its consistency. How is it consistently applied? And it, and it comes into play especially with prophecy. If you're a covenant theologian, you'll hold to a historical grammatical interpretation, but then when you get to prophecy, you're going to change your approach a little bit. And you're going to be open to a more spiritual interpretation of that prophecy that has a priority on the New Testament, reading that into the Old Testament. And that leads us to another distinction of, the, uh, of dispensationalism. Actually, I'm, I'm missing one. The second one would be an Old Testament priority. An Old Testament priority says that you need to, in order to understand the New Testament, you have to know the Old Testament. Covenant theology would flip that, that in order to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the New Testament. Now, there's a problem with that. The problem with that is the principle of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation states that God is progressively revealing himself throughout history. In other words, the cross and Jesus and the specifics of that, was that all revealed in its entirety at the beginning? No, it wasn't. It progressively revealed itself. And so that means that believers were responsible for the revelation that they had at the time. 
And that means, as you read scripture and you go through the Old Testament from book to book, it's building on what's said previously. And you understand what you're reading in light of that immediate context, not a later context down the road. And then, as I say there on the screen, the third, the third distinctive feature is that a, it's, there's a distinction between national Israel and the church. So that a dispensationalist will say that Old Testament prophecies made to national Israel will be fulfilled in national Israel. So if there is a promise of land, then what will, what will Israel get? Land. Okay. If, 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 uh, if the promise of their nation continuing, then it will continue. So, a distinction between national Israel and the church. And so you say, well, yes, I believe there's a distinction between national Israel and the church. I don't believe that the Israel is the church and the church is Israel. Well, then you might be a dispensationalist. And you may not even have known it, all right? So, that, there's another key distinction. And that springs from your understanding of Scripture. I want to go back again to the starting point, a starting point of that consistent, literal hermeneutic. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 8, says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What is this passage saying? This passage is saying that scripture is understandable and clear. It can give even the simple person wisdom. We must hold to a position that says that scripture is straightforward, clear, and authoritative. So we hold to a consistent, literal hermeneutic. Things that flow out of this consistently literal hermeneutic, again, would be promises to Israel are made to Israel. The concept of progressive revelation. The concept of Old Testament priority over New Testament priority. And again, when we talk about literal hermeneutic, it doesn't mean wooden, it doesn't mean concrete, it doesn't mean Amelia Bedelia, right, if you know those books. It doesn't mean that everything we think is completely literal, but we take it at face value. I like the terms, like I said, straightforward, normal reading, or perhaps originalist reading. What's the original understanding of the text? Take it at that. So that's dispensationalism. That there's marks, these epochs of time, as progressive revelation unfolds, that characterizes how God deals with his people in a given portion of time. Let me tell you a little bit about what makes a dispensation. How do you know when you have a dispensation? And we'll play this out. We'll experiment with this in a little bit. We'll see that they're marked by a couple things. Number one, a new administration. So the way God interacts with his people is a certain way. And with that new administration, you always see new revelation. As progressive revelation unfolds, with the new administration, he will bring with it revelation. In other words, he doesn't expect people to figure it out. He reveals new revelation. And then with those new revelations comes new responsibilities. New responsibilities. Now, it's important to note that salvation is always by grace through faith, no matter what dispensation you're in, in time. There's been some mischaracterizations that say that, um, that, that dispensationalists hold to two different ways of salvation. 
that in the old dispensation of the law, salvation was through works, and now in the church, it's, it's, it's through grace. That's completely unbiblical. Salvation is always by grace through faith, but the content of faith differs from dispensation to dispensation. Mankind is responsible for the revelation given to them. And so as we enter each dispensation, we ask the question, how does mankind express their faith in God? I think a a slightly off understanding of a dispensation, some people will will distinguish dispensations by saying it ends when man fails and God judges them. And then he has to start over. Now, man's failure is seen in every dispensation. We'll see that. Mankind just keeps messing up. But the end of one and the start of the other is not attributed to the failure of man. Because what does that leave us with? It leaves us with like a trial and error God. Right? Well, that didn't work. Okay? Let's try a nation, and we'll call it Israel. All right. Let's give them a law. See if, that, if they get the idea there. Oh, they blew that. I guess, you know, we'll have to go down to the earth, and, and, and I'll be in the flesh, and I'll show them everything, and, and then... And then Christ is killed and crucified. And so well, I'll, I'll come up with the church. Maybe the church will, will work. And no, nah, no, nope, that doesn't work. So I'll, send, I'll bring them up to me at the rapture. And then I'll come down and reign myself. Okay? That's not the model that dispensationalism holds to. That it's not just a series of failure and judgments and restarts. It's, it's all of history building toward one historic climax as the progressive, the progressive revelation unfolds. And so if we look at Scripture and we say, okay, there's different administrations marked by new revelation and new responsibilities, what would those dispensations be in Scripture? Now, the number of dispensations vary from dispensationalist to dispensationalist. Um, the good news is a certain number, you don't need to meet a certain number in order to qualify, Okay. Because these are just basically ob- observation. As you look through scripture, you try to observe and see how does God interact with his people at a given, given por- portion of time. What are the dispensations? Let's see if we can spot them. If you're going to find the very first period of time in which God is interacting with his people a certain way, and then it ends, what would that first one be? <laughs> Creation, good. Adam and Eve ending with? The fall, good. And so the first dispensation, um, most people call it the dispensation of innocence. It doesn't matter what you call it. Um, but the idea is that you, um, that you, that the, the, this first dispensation is um, God speaking directly face-to-face with mankind. We see that, that, that that's where the new revelation is, right? That this direct in- interaction with God. There's a new administration, we see even male headship in the, in the bonds of marriage. There's, there's new responsibilities. What are the responsibilities given to Adam? Uh, fill the earth, have dominion over everything, cultivate the garden, things like that. We see even, and you'll see this as progressive revelation unfolds, there's a continuing principles that carry through um, all of the rest of time. Some continuing principles that continue on from the dispensation of innocence could be um, the dominion mandate, right? The, uh, the foundation of marriage and the distinction between male and female. But there we see the first dispensation, that at the very beginning, God is interacting with mankind in this way. What do you think the next one would be? The next clearly marked time when God interacts with his people in a different way after the fall. What do you think it might be? 
So it starts at, after the fall, going to what time, do you think? Noah. Noah and the flood, right. And so this one is often called the dispensation of conscience. Why do people call it the dispensation of conscience? Well, if you're in your Bibles, you can look in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. We see that the mankind has grown wicked. And the Lord says in Genesis 6, verse 3, My spirit shall not always strive with man, contending with man. That God's interaction with people wasn't through a law, wasn't through a government, wasn't through face-to-face interaction as it was with Adam, but was, it was through his conscience. And we see the dispensation. The duration of this is from the leaving the garden to the flood. There's new revelation that marks this new dispensation, most primarily of which would be the promise of the demise of the serpent, that, that God, God is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so what's mankind's responsibility in this time? Well, it's, it's faith as always, right? And so it's faith in this promise that there would be a one who would crush the head of the serpent, Continuing principles, conscience remains intact. We all have a conscience still that God uses to show his moral law. And so we have the innocence, we have conscience. This one's tougher, and there might be even some disagreement with it. Anyone want to guess when the next dispensation is or when it ends? So if conscience ends at the flood, so the next one is from the flood to what do you think? Promise to Abraham, very good, and people call this one the dispensation of human government. The reason why it's called human government is that after the flood, God institutes certain things for government. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, the capital punishment is instituted. So it's no longer directly in the conscience of man, but now mankind is governing each other, so to speak. And, 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 the, and government is instituted. There's political structures incorporated. What do you think the next one is? So, call of Abram. That sounds like a promise, right? And when do you think this one ends? The call of Abram to the next one. Any guesses? In the giving of the law. Very good. So, God brings a promise to Abram. His name becomes Abraham. We see him calling Abraham in Genesis 12, and then it's formally declared in the Abrahamic covenant, which is Genesis 15. And as the question asked, what's the connection between covenants and dispensations? Sometimes they mark the beginning of a new dispensation, which would be this one. The Abrahamic covenant marks the beginning of this dispensation of promise. And we see that through Abram, there will be an establishment of an ethnic people for God, There will be a land for them, and there will be this universal blessing. So there's a new revelation. And with that, new responsibilities. Again, it would still is rooted in faith. And in fact, if you look in Romans, you see how Abraham and his faith is shown as the way in which he was was declared righteous before God. And so you have the dispensation of promise. And then if it ends with Moses, in the giving of the law, what do you think the next dispensation is? The law. Very good. 
And so here you have the dispensation of the law, and this was the, the foundation of the nation of Israel. God gives them a law, his good and moral law. Israel's become a theocratic state, and all the nations around them are to see God through the nation of Israel, that, God, that Israel is this beacon of light declaring who God is, and faith is exercised as people seek to follow God through the law and the promise. So the, there is the dispensation of law, and that carries all the way into the dispensation of the church. That you may ask, well, why is there, why is there so many scriptures that describe a sharp break between the law and the church. You're no longer under the law. Now you're under grace. Is that arbitrary? Is that well, first you weren't and now you, first you were under this, but now you're not under this, right? This is part of the administration of God. As this progressive revelation comes, right in between the law and the church, Jesus Christ himself comes. He fulfills the law. He, he, he sacrifices himself for us. And he establishes the church. And as we saw in Ephesians, this was the administration previously hidden. It was a mystery that Old Testament saints, they didn't see. They didn't know because it had not yet been revealed. And so we have the administration, the dispensation of the church. And then, finally, the dispensation of the millennium. The dispensation of the millennium. This is seen in Revelation 20 where the church is raptured, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, and then Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And this is really important when we go back to our consistent, literal hermeneutic of Scripture. If you commit to read the Bible consistently, read the Bible normally, and you get to Revelation 20, you have to believe in a millennium. You just have no other option. And so consistency leads you to that conclusion. The Bible talks about a thousand years, so it's a thousand years. Just like the captivity of Israel was 70 years, and so it's 70 years. In this new administration, Christ will rule directly and immediately. That Christ is, will be on the throne. Now again, people can say, well, there's a, people try to add other dispensations to this. They'll say, what about... After the, what, what about after the millennium, the eternal state? Uh, what about when Jesus is on the earth? What about the apostles? What about the exilic period? There's a lot of other things that you can sprinkle in there if you want to. But I think at some point it just gets a little crazy. So and the chart gets a little more complicated. And seven's a great number to stop at, so uh, we'll stop there. <laughs> but the main, the main purpose is not necessarily how many dispensations. Let's make sure that we're all clear on how many there are. But... It's grounded on the fundamental principle of a consistent approach to Scripture. If you read your Bible consistently and you start from the Old Testament and you read it at face value as you go, what do you discover? You discover distinct eras of time in which God and how he interacts with his people changes. God doesn't change. He's the same throughout all of it. But we see developments and progression as he moves from one thing to the next. Why does all this matter? I think it matters because dispensationalism actually makes scripture interpretation accessible for the common Christian. 
You don't have to have a seminary degree, and you don't have to think of, try to figure out how do we use metaphorical language to reinterpret these Old Testament prophecies. It's straightforward. What the scripture says is what it says. Which, in fact, is really interesting. When you look at where is dispensationalism most popular, it's in the churches. You know where dispensationalism is not popular? In the seminaries. That there's there's the, the, the number of dispensationalism seminaries to, to covenant theology, and there's a whole bunch of other you know, stripes that we could look at, it's, it's weighs heavily on the other side. Now, it's not to knock seminary training. It's just to say that when you look at, what about the, just the common Christian, how they approach the scripture, and just try to approach it normally and consistently? What happens? They often end up being dispensationalists. Another reason why this is important is dispensationalism instills confidence in the clarity of God's promises. I think it's really important. Because you can look at a promise and say, this is what God said. This is whom he said it to. This is what he promised. So what is the content of that promise? Exactly what it said. Who's going to receive it? Exactly who he said. How is he going to do it? Exactly how he said. And that's great because when we come to the New Testament promises for us, we can have that same confidence that the promise of a future resurrection, the promise of us reigning with Christ for all eternity, we don't have to wonder, is that metaphorical? Is that something other than what it seems to be? No, it's clear. And we can have confidence in the promises of God. I'm so sorry about that. But I hope that you see that how we approach Scripture is really important. And don't write off confusing technical theological jargon as, well, we'll let the professors deal with that. When we see how important it is and why we hold to certain things and go back to its fundamental principles, its starting point, you see why these systems, why these big terms are important. The most important thing is read Scripture consistently. Read Scripture as it is clearly stated and have confidence that what God has promised, He will fulfill, and He will fulfill it 